0: Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts.
1: Many would aim to live with Christ, but first, they must learn to die to sin. It is impossible for sin and grace to live in the same person.
2: Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered today. We are going to England in the middle of the 17th century to hear a sermon by Thomas Manton. Troy, how are you doing? Joel, I'm doing
0: great, and I'm excited to talk to you about Thomas Manton. I did not know much about Thomas Manton. I I mean, have not read any of his probably wonderfully good books. Uh, Joel, I read one website that talked about how a lot of the guys we mentioned on our show, have, and then this wasn't talking about our show, but just a lot of the people you see in church history have been forgotten for a long time. And some of them are only kind of being more rediscovered as of recently and reappreciated. Manton falls into that group of people. He was not mm-hmm. really remembered for a very long time uh, because they lived in an area, era of the where the church of England and England itself was persecuting these people, uh, people like Manton, John Owen, John Flavell, and others that we've had on our show. So that those who were kind of the losers, they got wiped from history. And one man, uh, Carl Truman, said to the religious victors, basically went the spoils. And the Puritans and these guys got forgotten. And they got left behind because they lost. So, But I I think you're going to find that Manton is actually really worth remembering. And an interesting guy.
2: Yeah, I find this era of England, I mean, church history in general, England in general, you know, specifically during this area of the persecution of the Puritans because there's so many people that chose to take up that cross, you know, for lack of better terms of, of rebutting against the government there. And the sad thing is a lot of them died out. Like a lot of them died under persecution there. They, they mm-hmm. died trying to preach, trying to to still proclaim the name of Jesus, despite the, uh, the restrictions that were put on them. Um, and they never saw, the light of day after that they never saw you know the 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 eras change they died before um the puritans were able to break out and so it's kind of an interesting way just to think of these people that despite and and i feel like thomas manton's one of those guys that had it all and gave it up to live a life uh that was not glorious um and it, you would you know that that was just his life now you you, you trade up a great life for you know a, a, when you talk about eternal realm, a spiritually greater life, but within the culture, a much more you're giving up so much uh, yeah. to identify with the Puritans there uh, and just accept that new identity of not having the status and the life that you used to have and, and being okay with that uh' it's, it's interesting to think about you know it's really that, cool that culture would have been. i like. think
0: challenging too because how many of us could say and i think manton might be the most uh probably one of the toughest most in your face cases we'll get to it in a minute but i mean he really he really was stepping down when he didn't right. have to uh, more than anyone in the groups that maybe we've studied so far he could have just basically stayed where he was he really chose to give it all up and it asks you you know how much of that would we be willing to do a i think that's a good question but B, it also really challenges this idea that like, oh, you know, Europe and the West have always been Christian. And I was like, well, oh, if you were a Puritan in the 1600s, you wouldn't have probably thought that and you would not have been happy if someone came up to you and was like, oh, you live in, you know, a nice, pleasant Christian country. And you're going, I have to preach in a barn five miles out of town. It doesn't feel that way.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. OK, so let's get into Man- H- Manton himself, uh, born in 1620 in Somerset, which is a part of England there. He comes from a family of ministers like like that's his bloodline that's his lineage grandfather was a minister great grandfather was a minister he himself would you know would would take up that that family tradition of being a minister he went to Oxford when he was 15 he graduated by the age of 19 and was ordained and that uh sounds young to us but that's pretty normal for that day and era it wasn't common uncommon rather to graduate from Oxford at age 19 Different different times, huh? Yeah, yeah. Joel, when did you graduate from Oxford again? We'll... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oxford. Let me tell you. No, um, he worked for seven years at uh, at a you know a normal church, nothing famous, nothing out of the way. But uh, you know, it, it was what he set out to do. He wanted to preach, uh, and he had a home church to do that with. He would eventually get promoted to to bigger churches, more famous churches uh in London itself and again very well liked. It became very, very popular and you know, kind of that um that struggle with popularity, you know, it's a blessing and occurs. Like what how do you use your popular- popularity? It's hard to to uh keep your thoughts in check when so many people love you and praise you, right? I you know, I've never had that problem <laughs> I'm so loved I had to work on it. But I imagine it's probably difficult uh-huh. for
0: those who do. If you're listening to this, you might be going, okay, it's kind of a run-of-the-mill story. I mean, this is a – and it's not. I mean, we, we have people from every era, tons of different places on Revive Thoughts. It's incredible how many people uh, we've gotten to pull from. But if you're listening to this and you've heard our other Puritan episodes, this doesn't sound that unfamiliar. You know, he goes to college. He does great. Everyone likes him. And then, of course, as you probably know, uh, the English Civil War will end up happening, and that will change his story and his trajectory a bit. But you might be kind of going, well, where are the more details? You just basically went from his birth all the way to his like you know second church all in one go. That's a little short. The thing is, Manton's story is a little bit tough because he's not very well remembered. His first biography about him was not written until two after 200 years after he had died. He was well respected and loved and by people later on. You know, J.C. Ryle, one of the most famous pastors of the 1800s, who we've done multiple episodes on him, loved him and wrote, helped write one of those biographies. And Charles Spurgeon, the famous Prince of Preachers, said that Manton is a mighty mountain of sound theology and second to none, which, I mean, those are great things to hear, right? But what's even more um, surprising about how forgotten Manton is, is that he was not just a famous pastor. He was also the chaplain of Oliver Cromwell when Cromwell took over basically England. Now, during the middle of the 1600s, if you don't know, the English had a big civil war, The king was ousted, he kind of got put on trial, he was killed, and the, the Puritans, for a time, took over, and that's a simplification, but it's the best way to say it. Cromwell ended up being the guy in charge. You would think the person that had been his chaplain would be a big deal to history. Like, you'd want to know who that was, what kind of things was he teaching, and yet, you know, I didn't know before this episode that he was. But then again, I also don't know who the chaplain to George Washington was. So I guess these kind of people, even though they played a tremendous role on history by leading the people who led history, we end up not knowing who many of them are. What's even more strange about him being the chaplain, though, was that he was actually against executing the king, and he preached a sermon against it before the whole parliament. After it happened, he offended and outraged a whole bunch of people, but he said, hey, I look, I support this movement of the Puritans running England. I do not support us executing the last guy who ran it. That was not what we should have done. And despite all of that, he ended up still being the chaplain to one of the most important people in this story. After Cromwell dies, England kind of goes through this period of uncertainty. Cromwell's son was just not gonna be Oliver Cromwell. And so Manton, in kind of a surprising move, goes, Let's bring the, the, the King's family back in and see if we can restore the crown.
2: Yeah, I think it'd be neat to do like an episode uh like a revived thoughts, revived conversations on like the chaplains of world power Ooh. leaders, you know, like there's I, I feel like that's there's some a stuff good episode. Idea. Joel
0: Put that on the, that is actually a really good episode idea. The, right? Who are the pastors of great men of history? Because I and that, they, they are so influential, and we could do a bunch on the Revolutionary War guys. They're so influential, and they're so completely forgotten. Yet, if they're the people who lead the leaders, think of how much influence they have over right. world history. Yet, You'll and never like, read them in a textbook.
2: Right, and just the, I feel like the psychology that goes along with that, you know, like you, I feel like... Because you're a part of a lot of decisions, you know. Like there's, there, that's got to be an interesting psyche for the chaplain himself to, yeah. You know, that's that's a way of thinking about spiritual leadership in a way that I feel like a lot of people don't ever encounter. That that I think would be fun to, to dive for into sure. and, and pull I, apart.
0: How and, much would it affect your preaching if the president of the United States or, or right. wherever you're living right now was in your, you know, was sitting inside of your, uh, your your church day in and out? I feel like you would you would love to say it. It's not supposed to. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God is on your throne. It should not affect you. And yet, like, let's be honest, it would be very difficult for that not to affect you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, interesting. Um, okay, so man, so big part of the, the team that negotiated the return of the king back to England, and he even ended up traveling to the Netherlands uh, to do this, to help get the king back to the Netherlands and when he did the king made him the royal chaplain and so it sounds like everything's going great and everything does go really great for a little bit and that's until 1662 when England passed the laws against the Puritans and uh, you know Manton wasn't included in these original laws uh, and he was even offered a great preaching and teaching position due to his royal connections. I feel like this is one of those things where um, yeah people don't realize like they thought Manton would be on their side, uh, and then you know Manton is left thinking about where he stands, and and I feel like he almost even shocks the people around him when he's like, "Actually, I'm, I'm I am more on this Puritan side that uh, you're persecuting." As it turns out, you know I, I identify more with them, um, and so he makes this really tough choice. He decides to sacrifice everything that he had and join. I mean, there was roughly like two thousand Puritans at this time that. Uh, were recorded as refusing to go along with the new laws. And he quit all of his posts. He quit all of his positions. He preached his last official sermon at his church uh, a week after that and uh, now had no royal connections, no church uh, to preach at, and so he started uh, to preach from home out of his house. And at one point he was sent to jail for six months for refusing to cooperate. And this happened to a lot of men during this era, such as like John Bunyan or Stephen Charnock. For a time he was allowed to preach, but that quickly got locked down again and he wasn't able to preach openly The the laws were a little bit in fluctuation there, but during his, the, the rest of his life, essentially, he ended up dying in 1677. Uh, he was never really able to preach open again. And I feel like kind of the sad part is, is like, that was the England that he died seeing was this one that persecuted believers. And, um, the one that he decided he was going to try to make a difference in and live for and preach for. Um, but you know, Hearing a very small audience, giving up all of the ears that he had in his royal chambers uh, for a humble house church that was being raided and and people being thrown into jail uh, is a pretty big decline, a pretty big jump for the man that that Thomas Martin was. But, you know, I think Troy and I would both agree. I don't think he wanted it any other way like that was truth to him. And that's what mattered to him. And that's what he was happy to exchange his lifestyle for, was a more humble one uh, that, that coordinated with God's truth there.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation
1: may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
0: If you're in ministry, or even if you're not and you're in your own job, you might be thinking, I mean, so much of life is, you know, trying to get more people in the seats and especially if you're in ministry if you spend time in ministry you know how important it is to try to grow the church to get more people build out that stuff imagine arriving i mean you are the royal chaplain for the chaplain of oliver cromwell somehow you're also going to be the chaplain of the king who's getting rid of every of you know all the cromwell and you end up on both sides of this you're as high up you've been living in that high up sphere for years. I mean, you've been, you know, hobnobbing with kings and you've been you've been you were sent on the special delegation and you're in a very important person. And you give up all of that, like Joel said, to just run the small home church. You give up all the ears, all and you could just so easily so said to say to yourself, I can affect more people this way. I can do more on the inside, right? But Manton said, no, I I have to stick to what is true and what is good. And if I if I go along with that, I'm compromising. I gotta give it up. I think that, should really make us all pause and ask, like, man, am I willing to do that? It, would I? Would I have gone like Manton did? And then he truly did get forgotten. I <laughs> mean, uh, you know, it's, it's two hundred years later before anybody finds, you know, his biography and starts releasing his works again. So he really does this amazing thing, and it really truly does get him forgotten but not forever. And we're remembering him more today. And you're able to remember him on this episode. J.C. Ryle wrote a quote, and this actually uh, came in from the person who speaks the sermon. They really like this one, but he said, uh, J.C. Ryle speaking of Manton says, but in Manton's Calvinism, there was a curiously happy attention to the proportion of truth. He never exalted one doctrine at the expense of any other. He gave to every doctrine, the place and rank that he felt it had in scripture, neither more or less with a wisdom and felicity, happiness, which I miss in some of the Puritan divines. You know, Manton had a joy when he approached Scripture. He had a joy when he approached what he did. Uh, he was very intelligent. He was very good at that. I had a couple quotes by Manton. I, we don't normally do this, but these were, these were I feel like, the kind of quotes that give you insight into a man and who he was. And I also just kind of thought they were a little bit convicting. So I'm going to read a couple of these, and then we're going to let the sermon go. But I just wanted you to hear just a couple of these, because, again, they're some of them are kind of entertaining, but they're, they're thoughtful. One of them was, when we make ourselves the goal of prayer, it is no longer worship, but self-seeking. In other words, when you only pray for yourself, you are not praying to worship God, you are praying to seek yourself. Another one, excess and meat and drink will cloud the mind, it will choke your good affections, and it will cause you to lust. Many a man has dug his own grave using his teeth. Which is an interesting statement. I've never heard anybody say anything quite like that. If we are empty and poor, it is not because God's hand is straightened against us, but it is that our hands are not opened to him. And the more affected we are with our own misery, the fitter we are for Christ's mercy. And finally, until we sin, Satan will be a parasite to us. But when once we are in the devil's hands, he has become our tyrant. All right, that was just a few of those I thought were interesting. He has several others, but Manton is one of those men who's kind of known for quotes and turning a phrase. And if you ever want to read just some fantastic quotes and just hear some interesting wisdom, sprinkle those around. uh, I recommend giving Manton a look at because I thought he had a lot of really good ones. All right, now you're going to listen to a sermon by him. You're going to be able to hear a little bit of that heart and joy for Scripture.
1: my eyes from looking at worthless things, and revive my life in your ways. David continues his request to God for grace, and this entitles him to the whole work. He had prayed before that God would incline his heart, now that he would turn away his eyes from beholding worthless things. In this prayer, there are two branches. The one is his humiliation, and the other his revival. First, turn away then revive the first request is for removing the hindrances to obedience the other is the addition of new degrees of grace these two are rightly joined together for they have a natural influence upon one another unless we turn away our eyes from worthless things we will soon gain a deadness of heart nothing causes so much deadness of the heart as a boundless liberty in carnal pleasures When our affections are alive to other things, they are dead to God. Therefore, the less we give our hearts to these worthless things, the more lively and cheerful the work of obedience becomes. And on the other side, the more the vigor of grace is renewed and the habit of following it is brought into an actual exercise, the more sin will be mortified and subdued. Sin dies, and so our senses are restored to their proper use these two requests of david are rightly joined together let us consider them each first turn away my eyes from beholding worthless things there observe the object a worthless thing it means carnal and worldly things worldly pleasures worldly honor worldly profits all these are, all these are called worthless things because they have no solid happiness in them for they easily fade and perish So it is said, Proverbs 31, verse 30, Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain. The same is true of any other temporary things. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. And Job 15, verse 31, Do not let him that is deceived trust in vanity, for vanity will be his payment. Romans 8, verse 20, The creature is made worthless. By worthless things there is understood the vain things of the world, which so often deceive us due to the happiness they promise. Secondly, the method is mentioned through the eye. The eye is employed and commanded by the heart, but this eye will revive new flames in the heart. And as it sets to to work by the heart, so it sets the heart to work again as well. It is the tool that increases sin in us. Thirdly, the act. Turn away. Our evil delight is is too quick to fixate on it. And it becomes a trap to us until God cures both heart and eye by grace. He does not pray to remove it altogether, but from using it as a snare. Doctrine to consider. It concerns those that would walk with God to have their eyes turned away from worldly things. He that would be revived who goes through life with passion in the ways of God, must first be humbled and die to sin. The apostle there speaks of fruit of Christ's death, being dead to sin before he can live to God. 1 Peter 2, verse 24 David first makes his request, Turn away my eyes and then revive. Many would aim to live with Christ, but first they must learn to die to sin, it is impossible for sin and grace to live in the same person. Now, one great means of becoming humble is guarding the senses, eyes and ears and taste and touch, so that they may not betray the heart. I put it in general terms because the man of God that is so careful to watch over his eyes would not be careless of his ears and other senses. We must we must watch on all sides. When an assault is made, It is made on all sides. Even if one gate cracks open, it is as good as if all were open. The senses are the ports by which sin sails in and goes out. The out and in of sin is by the senses, and much of our danger lies here, partly because there are so many things that comfort our restlessness, that once we do them, they stick themselves into the soul. And therefore, things long since seemingly dead will soon revive again and recover life and strength if it is allowed. There are no means to keep the heart unless we keep the eye, and partly because in every creature Satan has laid a snare for us to steal away our hearts and affections from God, partly because the senses are so ready to receive these objects from the outside to wound the heart. For they are like the heart is. If the heart is poisoned with sin and becomes a servant to it, so are the senses of our bodies weapons Of unrighteousness which is Romans 6 verse 13 things have an impression upon them answerable to the attitude and the loves of the soul and what it desires they latch on to if we let the senses wander the heart will take fire if we do not stop evil at the beginning but leave it alone and it begins to grow we cannot stop it when we would like to and are unable to stop the motions of it from flying away Above all senses, the eye must be guarded, for it is the noblest sense given to us for the higher use. There is not only a natural use to inform us of things profitable and hurtful to the outward man, but a spiritual use to see things that may stir us and raise our minds to heavenly thoughts and meditations. For by seeing the perfection of the creatures, we may admire the more eminent perfection of him that made them. Psalm 19 verse 1 the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies show his handiwork. And Psalm 8, verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have made, David, when he walked in a moonshining night, admired the glory of the moon and stars. The moon and stars are mentioned because it was a night meditation. His heart was set on, the, on what his eyes had before him. Romans 1, verse 20, 21. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. The perfections of the creatures are to draw us to God, and their imperfections and defects drive us from worshipping them. The eye, as it is used, will either be a help or a snare, either it will let in sparks of temptation or revive the fire of true devotion. These are the windows which God has placed in the top of the building that man from there may contemplate God's works and consider the prospects of heaven, that place of our eternal home. God made man with a tall posture, not groveling on the earth, but looking up to heaven and viewing the glorious mansions above. For the eyes have a great influence upon the heart, either to to do good or evil, but chiefly to do evil. In this corrupt state of man, by looking we come to liking, and are brought inordinately to love what we do see. Numbers 15, verse 39. That you seek not after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you used to go after as harlots. Job 31, verse 7. If my step has turned out of the way, and my heart walked after my eyes. These are the spies of the heart, brokers to bring the heart and the temptation together. The eye sees, and then by gazing, the heart lusts, and the body acts out the transgression. It is more dangerous to see evil than to hear it. The power is greater on it. The explanation of anything does not affect us nearly as much as the sight of it. Those that hear of the fury of wars, burning of houses, the raping of virgins, killing and wounding of men and the like cannot have so deep a sense of those things as those that saw it. The sight of heaven works more than the talk of it. As Paul, when he had the sight of these things, was in ecstasy, the look immediately worked on his heart. But then, it is dangerous to fix the eye on enticing things, for it excites more than mere words. The eye must be guarded. Because it has been the window by which Satan has crept in, and all manner of poison entered the soul, it must be guarded. I will prove it. I will give you theological reasons. The eye has been the port of all sin, as unclean, uncleanness. Second Peter 2, verse 14, having eyes full of adultery, and it cannot cease from sin, deceiving unstable souls. In the original, it is eyes full of the adulteress, and the eye awakens impure flames in the heart. Proverbs 6, verse 25, lest not after her beauty in your heart, and do not let her take you with her eyelids. Gazing on the beauty of women awakens foul flames within the heart, and we feel strange motions of the soul when we give way to it. The evil heart is in its element when it is this way. Then covetousness gets into the heart by the eye, 1 John 2, verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And therefore the apostle, when he categorizes sin, he says... For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. For the mind is so secretly enchanted with the love of those things that it sees. In Ecclesiastes 4, verse 8, There is no end of all his labor, and his eye is not satisfied with riches. That insatiable thirst is awakened in the soul by beholding the splendor of outward things. It is born and bred and fed by it. And the heart is secretly enchanted with the love of it, and therefore we must have more of it. Again, drunkenness, Proverbs 23, verse 31. Do not look upon the wine when it is red, when it gives gives its color in the cup, when it moves itself rightly. That is so as to entice the heart to crave more and more till it comes to excess. So goes envy, Matthew 20, verse 15. Is your eye evil because mine is good? The more they see and behold the flourishing of others, the more evil their heart grows. Let me begin with the first sin, historical example of the eye. It is said, Genesis 3, verse 6, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit. She was first corrupted, in her sense, by gazing on the fruit with delight. That was the first sin, before eating. The devil tempted Christ when he wanted to corrupt the second Adam. Matthew 4, verse 8, he takes him up into a high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. He knew the best way to work was by sight, and though he could not prevail against Christ, he took the way that would give him the best advantage, and afterwards, What an account we have in Scripture. How many have been wounded through their eyes, the devil. He knows what is the best way to work upon the heart. So Potiphar's wife, Genesis 39, verse 7, And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Sleep with me. There the trouble began. She pleased herself with looking at the Hebrew servant. So Achan, Joshua 7, verse 21, When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonish garment, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold of fifty shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them. First he saw, then coveted, then took, and then hid. And then Israel falls before the Philistines, and he is found out by lots and brought to judgment. So Shechem and Dina. Genesis 34, verse 2. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her, and lay with her, and defiled her. Seeing always comes between the senses and the heart. So of Samson, Judges 16, verse 1, Samson went to Gaza, and saw there a harlot, and went into her. So David was ensnared by looking at Bathsheba, Second Samuel 11, verse 2, and it came to pass at evening time that David arose from his bed and walked upon the roof of the king's house, And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself, and the woman was very beautiful to look upon. That fired up his heart brought such troubles upon him. Naboth's vineyard was nearby Ahab's palace, 1 Kings 21 verse 1. It was forever in his eye, and therefore he is troubled and falls sick over it. So many can complain that their souls have been betrayed by their eyes. Jacob's sheep, by looking on the rods, brought out young ones colored by the rods. And so our actions come from the things we take in by the senses. We must make sure to rebuke those that are careless of their senses. When they are left alone with their senses, they soon prove to be the ruin of their soul. Solomon gives us the reason for his folly and fall from God. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 10. Whatever my eye desired, I did not keep it from them. I did not keep my eyes from any toy. Those men lie under the power of sin they let the boat run with the steam and never use any restraint against it. They are gently wandering down into the gulf of destruction. They open the gates to the enemy and give them free entertainment. A man that is careless of his senses is like a city without walls, that lies open to all who come. The heart is a highway for sin and temptations. But because most men, yes, the good men, have and may miscarry the way, let me produce some considerations that they may see the foolishness that lets their hearts run unguarded. Number one, foul foul sinners are revived when we thought long since laid asleep, when we let the things that they desire strike too freely upon the soul. Who would have thought that David's heart should have been fired up by a look? It is dangerous to play with temptations and to think no great harm will come of them. Stones running downhill, Are not easily stopped. The same is seen here. When we yield a little to Satan's temptations, he carries us away by force. We cannot suddenly stop it when we please. Number two, evil thoughts will grab a hold in us and make us guilty before God, even if they don't break out into sinful acts. Looking causes lusting, and that is adultery before God. Matthew 5, verse 28. But I say to you, whoever looks upon a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Christ came to restore the law in its spiritual sense. The Pharisees did not think the law was broken except by outward gross acts and actual defilement. But Christ shows that a glance is adultery. An envious look murders. The heart consents to sin, through the bod- though the body did not act it out. Thirdly, By leaving the senses without a guard, evil thoughts are pushed upon us secretly. Though we are not aware of any sensible disorder for the present, the heart grows vain and carnal by letting loose the eye to worthless things. Job does not only take notice of his eyes when they stir up carnal thoughts for the present. In Job 31, verse 7, it says, If my eyes have walked after my heart, and if my steps have turned out of the way, he speaks twice of the disorders of his eyes. The heart may be corrupted by the eye, and therefore it concerns you to set a guard upon the senses. Proverbs 4, verse 25. Let your eyelids look on, and your eyes look straight before you. Let us focus on our business, which is to go to heaven. Whereas by gazing and wandering, the heart comes to be enchanted with earthly things. Fourthly, by wandering and letting loose the eye, the heart is distracted from its duty. Distraction distraction in duty is a great and common evil, and one cause of it is the curiosity of the senses. How often do we mingle sulfur with our incense and come to worship God having our hearts out to the ends of the earth? Men let loose their eyes and then off go their hearts, and therefore, as Solomon says, take heed to your foot when you enter enter into the house of God, Ecclesiastes 5. Many come here merely to see and to be seen, and to display their vanity by their vain attire. How many are there that let loose their eyes to worthless things, when they should give up their ears to the counsel of God? Some dress up themselves in such vain attire and in decent fashion, to draw the eyes of others to gaze upon them. This is a great affront to God's worship. Solomon says in Proverbs 17 verse 24, the fool's eyes are to the ends of the earth. One cause of distraction is the curiosity of the senses. Our eyes run back and forth, and then our hearts wander and rove from the business we are about. It is a strange constancy and fixedness that is spoken of the priests at Jerusalem. That when Faustus, Cornelius, and Furius, and Fabius broke into the, into the city with their troops and rushed into the temple ready to kill them, yet they went on... With the rituals of the temple as if nothing had happened and strange is the other instance of the spartan youth for they held the censer to alexander when he offered sacrifice a coal fell and burned his arm but he allowed it to burn there rather than cry out and disturb the worship these examples bring shame to christians that we do not focus our hearts when we are in the service of god with the same intensity use two the second use it to press us to this place of mortification, that we would turn away our, your eyes from beholding worthless things. To help you in it, you must, one, take Job's course. Job 31, verse 1. I made a covenant with my eyes. Job and his eyes were in a covenant. There was a covenant between heart and eyes. Eyes, be faithful to my soul that there is nothing that may stir up carnal and impure thoughts, that there is no unclean objects that may fire my heart. Oh, the stupidity of this age! Some will laugh at this kind of discipline, to be so strict and precise, but why? Has sin grown less dangerous? Or is man's nature wiser and stronger now? Are we better fortified against temptations than he was? Are our hearts in a better posture than the servants of God of old? Surely not. And so, set a watch upon your eyes, that sin does not break in upon your heart. Number two. Consider the worthlessness of the things we adore and take in by the eyes. So says David, turn away my eyes from beholding worthless things. They are poor, vain, perishing things, yet they suit our senses too well. And consider what Solomon says of these things. Will you set your heart upon that which will not be? We inflame our hearts with these things, and lust puts a lovely face upon the object that suits it. But what are they? Whatever they seem to be, it is but a worthless thing. Psalm 39, verse 6. Man flatters himself in a vain show. All the splendor and beauty of it is but vain. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 31, the fashion of the world passes away. It is but an empty thing, as if they are, they are flying bubbles. Though the world is of some use to us in our pilgrimage, yet pitiable things are those that for the world they should, reject, they should neglect their duty to God and grow less lively for God or have their hearts withdrawn from God. it is the temptation that makes them seem beautiful. When these alluring vanities are before our eyes, lust puts a gloss upon them that is not true. But consider what they are actually, and in comparison, think of the things that they take you away from, namely heaven and, and eternal blessedness. Number three, consider the cursed nature of these things when you let loose your eye and heart to vanity. When you please the eye, you, you wound the heart, and it makes you unfit for your great great reward. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth, and walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. Yet know for all these things God will bring you to judgment. Go, drench and steep your soul in carnal delights. When your wandering and loose eye influences the lust of your heart, it all begins to boil up when you have not denied yourself anything your heart wishes for and your and your eyes look to see, put in a, a little cool water to stop the boiling and raging of your lust. Remember that God will bring you to judgment even if you do right now bury your conviction and drown your logic in these sensual delights. Yet God will call you to an account for all your time and parts and strength and wit and talents entrusted with you. Fourthly, Pray, as David does here, turn away my eyes. He calls upon God for the assistance of his grace. In Psalms 141, verse 3, Set a watch upon the door of my lips. He that bends and inclines the heart by his grace to look after better things must also bridle the senses. It is lust that sets the eye to work, and causes a deep complacency and delight in carnal things, and that is cured only by God's grace. Mark 10, verse 27. Therefore, go and beg this mercy of Him. Fifthly, constant watchfulness. Oh, we cannot open our eyes without being met with a temptation, a door opened for Satan to enter through. Therefore, We need to diligently and constantly keep watch, especially when lusts are likely to be stirred. Lot's wife was told not to look back to Sodom, but Abraham was called to look upon it. It was no temptation to him, but it was to her. She had her heart hungering after it. Genesis 19 verse 17 compared with verse 28. When we are in danger of temptation we should keep a severe and strict hand upon the senses, so that they may not dwell unnecessarily upon alluring things. And sixthly, we have renounced the pomp and vanities of the world in baptism. And will our eyes and hearts run after them? This is implied in our baptism, for baptism is called the answer of a good conscience towards God, First Peter 3, verse 21. It is an answer to God's demand in the covenant. God was to us the question whether we will renounce the world and the vanities and pleasures found inside. Now when we have renounced these things, will our eyes and our hearts run after them? Will we turn the senses against God who gave us the use of them? Yes, even against our souls to shame you that have not been more faithful to your baptism, baptismal vow. Consider faithful th- things heathens have done. Basil relates that Alexander, a young man in the heat of blood and in the flowery flower of his age, refused to see Darius' daughter. It is a shame, he says, for him to have conquered so many men and yet to be conquered by a woman. It is said of some heathens that they put out their eyes so that they might not be a snare for them. We have grace so that we may not need such violence to ourselves, but certainly The eyes of our lusts should be put out. You see, our baptism convicts us. If heathens, those that never came under such a relationship to God, if if they, by the light of nature, saw that the guarding of the senses was a help to the soul, it concerns us much more to renounce the pomp and vanities of the world. Secondly, we come to the request. Revive me in your way. By reviving is meant the incitement of spiritual life. He begs grace to perform his duty to God with cheerfulness, liveliness, and zeal. Doctrinally speaking, reviving is necessary for those that would walk in God's ways. I will not cover it here as a prayer to God or as it is a blessing to be asked of God, but instead as it is necessary to our obedience. And here I will discover what reviving is, and then show the necessity of it. First, what reviving is. It is for two things. One, it is for regeneration or the infusion of grace. And two, for the renewing the passion of the life of grace, the renewed influence of God, where this grace is stirred up in our hearts. First, for the regeneration or the infusion of grace. Ephesians 2, verse 1 and 2. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, yet now has revitalized us. Then we are revived or made alive to God when we are newborn and the habit of grace is put into our hearts. Secondly, reviving is for the renewed excitement of grace, and so it is twofold, either by way of comfort in our afflictions or reviving in a way of holiness. And so it is opposed to weakness, which is occasioned by Too deep a sense of present troubles, and a distrust of God and the supply of His grace. When the affliction is heavy upon us, we are like birds dead in the nest, and are so overcome that we have no spirit or courage in the service of God. Psalm 119, verse 50 This is my comfort in affliction, for your word has revived me. Then we are said to be revived when He raises up our hearts above the trouble, by refining our suffering graces, as faith hope, and patience. So he is said to revive the contrite one, Isaiah 57, verse 15, to restore comfort to us and to refresh us with a sense of his love. There is a reviving in our duty, which is opposed to the deadness of our spirit. This deadness is always ready to creep upon us, occasioned by negligence and laziness in the business of the spiritual life. Now, to revive us, God excites his grace in us. An instrument, though in tune, soon grows out of order. A key rarely turns rusts in the lock. So graces that are not kept working lose their exercise and grow lukewarm. Or else it is occasioned by carnal freedom or entangling with worldly things. These bring a filter and deadness upon the heart. And the soul is depressed by the cares of the world, Luke 21, verse 34. Now when you are under this temper of soul, desire the Lord to revive you by new influences of grace. Secondly, let me show you the necessity of this revival. Number one, it is necessary, for without it, our general standing is questionable, whether we actually belong to God or not. 1 Peter 2, verse 5. You are living stones built up into a spiritual house. It is not enough to be a stone in Christ's building, but we must be living stones. Not only members of his body, but living members. I cannot say someone has no grace, but when they do not show it, then their condition is very questionable. Although a man may be living when he is not lively. Two, but without it, we cannot perform our duties correctly. Religion to a dead heart is a very irritating thing. When we are dead-hearted, we do our duties as if we did them not in a course of obedience. We must go to God, Psalm 119, verse 88. Revive me after your loving kindness, so I will keep the testimonies of your mouth. Then we do good for a good purpose indeed. It is not enough for us to pray, but we must pray with life and passion, Psalm 80, verse 18. Revive me, and I will call upon your name. So we should hear with life, not in a dull, careless fashion. Matthew 13, verse 15. Thirdly, all the graces that are planted in us tend to bring reviving. As faith, hope, and love. These are the graces that set us to work and make us lively in the exercise of the spiritual life. Faith that works by love. Galatians 5, verse 6. It sets the soul to work by apprehending the sense of God's love. Whereas, otherwise, it is just a dead faith, James 2.16. Then, for love, what is the influence of that? It constrains the soul. It takes the soul with it, 2 Corinthians 5.14 and Romans 12.1. And then hope. It is called a lively hope, First 1 Peter 1, 1.3. All grace is put into us to make us lively. Not only the grace of sanctification, but the grace of justification is bestowed upon us for this end that we may be cheerful in God's service. Hebrews 9.14 How much more will the blood of Christ purge our consciences from dead works, that we may serve the living God? Sin and guilt make us dead and heavy-hearted. But now the blood of Christ is sprinkled upon the conscience, and the sentence of death taken away, then we are made cheerful to serve the living God. Fourthly, All the commands which God has appointed are to help us get and increase this liveliness in us. Where has God appointed the word? Isaiah 55 verse 3 says, Here and your souls will live. It is to promote the life of grace, that we may have new encouragement to go on in the ways of God. Moses, when he received the law, is said to receive the lively oracles of God. Acts 7 verse 38 So the doctrine of Christ they are all they are all spirit and life and serve to begin life in us as the redemption of the world by Christ the joys of heaven the torments of hell they are all reviving truths and reminders to us to keep up keep us in life and vigor the lord's supper why was that appointed there we come to taste the flesh of Christ who was given for the life of the world john 6 that we might sensibly exercise our faith upon Christ, that we might be more sensible of our obligations to him, that we might be the more excited in the diligent pursuit of things to come. David considers the dullness and deadness of a spirit which many do not, but go on in a cold track of duties and never regard the frame of their hearts. It is a good sign to observe our spiritual temper and accordingly go to God. Most observe their bodies, but very few their souls. If the body is ill at ease or out of order, they complain. But love waxes cold, and their zeal for God and delight in Him is dulled, yet they never lay it to heart. And now to encourage us to get and keep this lively frame of heart, we must get it and pray for it. Liveliness and obedience does depend upon God's blessing, unless He puts life in And keeps life in our soul. All comes to nothing. Come to God upon the account of his glory. Psalm 143 verse 11. Revive me, O Lord, for your name's sake. For your righteousness' sake. Bring my soul out of trouble. His tender mercies. Psalm 119 156. Great are your tender mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your judgments. Come to him upon the account of Christ. John 10, verse 10, I have come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. John 7, verse 38, He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. Every new act of faith draws from Christ an increase of spiritual life. Stir up yourselves, Isaiah 64, verse 7, There is none that calls upon your name that stirs up himself to take hold of you. 2 Timothy 1, verse 6, where I put you in remembrance that you stir up the gift of God, which is in you by the putting on of my hands. Psalm 42, verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Have your hope in God, for I will yet praise him for the help of his presence. We have enough liveliness to do all kinds of business of secular concern. Consider what the business is that we are about. It is about our heavenly estate, whether we will live forever in heaven or hell. And will we trifle here? You had life in a way of sin. Worldly men are lively. How dishonorable a thing it is to serve the living God with a dead heart. A lukewarm frame is hateful to God, Revelations 3, verse 16. Because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Be careful that you do not lose revival, especially not through corruption or any horrible sin. Psalm 51, 10-12 Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with your free spirit. The spirit is a tender thing. A wound in the body lets out the life blood, but by an inordinate liberty and worldly pleasures. 1 Timothy 5, 6. But she that lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. Vain company, vain speeches, and the like, these things shun and avoid. But, Hebrew, as Hebrews 10, verse 24 says, Let us consider one another to provoke to love and to good works. Let us follow good examples. We grow formal and slight by imitation. Others profess religion and yet are dead-hearted and vain, and so are we. The idolaters encouraged one another, Isaiah 41, 6 and 7. They helped, each one his own neighbor, and everyone said to his brother, Be of good courage. So the carpenter encouraged the goldsmith, and smoothed with the hammer that which strikes the anvil. We should encourage one another in the way of godliness, and keep up a lively frame of heart towards God. And pray with the psalmist in the text. Turn away my eyes from beholding worthless things, and revive me in your way.
2: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Daniel Harris. Big shout out to Daniel Harris. He told us actually that he had listened to every single episode of Revived Thoughts, which warms my heart to know that there's there's someone that's actually, <laughs> actually gone through every episode that's pretty neat we've had a few
0: people in that boat who've listened to pretty much all of our episodes i could name them but it would take a little while i don't want to but i know who some of you are who have told me that and i have not forgotten it and i am very appreciative <laughs> when i do find out that uh i mean because some of those early episodes are by thoughts so they're wonderful sermons rough they, they're not quite as fine and polished as these are. And some of you might be listening and thinking these are fine and polished, but they are in comparison to some of uh, right. those very early, early episodes when I was recording in a laundry room in uh, Miami or you know some of the different traveling places I've had to record our episodes from. Joel, we are going to encourage you and our audience to check us out on Patreon. I am putting up the Deep Dive Part 2, and you can all listen to it. And if you're going, wait. Uh, there's a part two. Yeah, we didn't. It, the story doesn't end uh, where we ended it. There's a whole part two. It is amazing. I I think it is very very fascinating. Joel, as the audience surrogate who had mm-hmm. heard it all for the first time,
2: what did you think? I'm 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 loving it. I am learning so much. I tell my wife everything that I learned <laughs> that that day, l- later on that day, and be like, Did you know that this is how that <laughs> happened? This is interesting. Yeah, it's neat. It's really good. If you ever find yourself in a uh, party of theologians that want to talk <laughs> theology, is, is there's some great facts in there to drop that, that make you seem pretty cool. So definitely worth uh, checking out.
0: So definitely go subscribe to Patreon. Get in there. Uh, become one of our amazing Patreon friends. And you can listen to Deep Dive Part 2, Deep Dive Part 3. We have it scheduled. We know when it will be getting recorded, you know, barring no problems. And so be ready for those to get dropping. And yeah, we're very excited about that. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts.